Pace Line is supported by LEL Cycling. The coast is calling. LEL's shore collection embodies the spirit and style of the California coast. All LEL products are crafted in Southern California for shipment worldwide. Now, on to the show. From Red Kite Prayer, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, Celine Yeager, a.k.a. the Fit Chick of Bicycling Magazine. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. So I'm just going to go ahead and address my voice. Uh, Yes, I sound surprisingly hoarse because I have something called dysphonia, uh, which was caused by last week's epidural injection of cortisone in my neck. It will go away at some point, but for now, I'm offering people deals they can't refuse. (laughs) (laughs) So I have a little voice thing, too. Uh, Mine is from screaming about the Eagles game. People might be (laughs) surprised to know that I'm a bit of a football person, but I am an Eagles fan, and I don't know if you have any idea what happened, but the game was won in a ridiculous fashion. Like... The, the Bears had it. They were going to kick the game-winning field goal, and the ball was slightly tipped, and it hit the one upright, looked like it was going to bounce in, and hit the crossbar and bounced out. No time left on the clock. Anyway, okay, well, so, I saw wait. that people on the Facebooks lost their minds. You probably both, heard this both positively and negatively. Yes, it was yes. it was one of those. It was a very very exciting game, and uh, we had done a like a three or four hour mountain bike ride leading into that, and then. It was my friend's birthday party, and then we stayed up and watched the game, and I screamed my head off, and um, yeah, it, my voice got a little rough for the next few days, <laughs> so we'll both just sound that way. It's fine. So let's check in next week and see whose voice has recovered faster. Depends what they do against the Saints. No, sorry. <laughs> okay. And suddenly we're on sports radio. Okay. What do you think about... Sorry. <laughs> Never mind. Well... Uh, so let's talk tandems for a sec. Oh, yeah. What about, um, I mean, you don't mean the podcast, you mean real life tandems. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I had this really cool, uh, experience, you know, last week, uh, Mm -hmm. made a little getaway, uh, to Mendocino. Um, and it reminded me of all the things that are so fantastic about tandems. Hmm. And then, uh, nearly all of the things that are challenges about mm. tandems. Um, and you've I done think. a lot of crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. And a reader, uh, reader, I always call our listeners readers because I'm so used <laughs> to the written word. Sorry, true. guys. Listener, I think a listener did actually chime in too, um, if I'm not correct, and wanted to know about our tandem stories. You yep. seem, um, you're seem more... Um, accomplished, let's let's call it accomplished than mine. Ooh, I, 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 I have I have tried. I will tell you, um, the first time my husband and I tried uh, a tandem, they they rented them. They used to rent equipment from Rodale, which is the parent company of bicycling. And mm-hmm. we were like, that sounds like a great idea. We'll rent a tandem. Like everybody was sort of into <laughs> this whole tandem thing, and I was like, what? That sounds like a great idea. So 
we get this tandem and we start wheeling it around and uh, and I hate it immediately because I can't see. My husband is 6'2". I can't see a thing and I'm just annoyed. So I'm just annoyed. I'm complaining. I'm like, bah, 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 bah. I can't see. I don't like this. Like, why are you pedaling? Like, the whole thing. Why are you coasting? We should be pedaling. So he stops and he puts me on the front and he's like, you try. I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I get us going and, um, you know, when you get going, you're going, you know, like, mm. it's yeah, you're going. Yeah. And we're heading straight towards a, a wall. Um, you know, we're sort of going through, we're even through a parking lot and going literally right towards a wall. <laughs> and I, I can't steer us quickly enough. So I yell, abandon ship. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I actually mean it. <laughs> and I jump off the front. <laughs> and, uh... He manages to Fred Flintstone the thing and grab, like, reach forward and grab the brakes. And I don't, he didn't hit the wall in my memory. He might correct me. <laughs> um, so we never tandem again. That's, a, that's true. That is true. We never tandemed again. Um, and my second tandem story is equally terrifying. I will keep it brief. But um, somehow after this, my editor at Bicycling still thought it would be a good idea to send me up to Brookline, Massachusetts to lead tandem rides for the blind. Um, so okay. we went to an institute where they do it, – it's actually an amazing institute, but as people may or may not realize, when you get to these places where they do sporting events – they often have donated equipment. So these tandems were not great. They were they were not great tandems. <laughs> and literally, we got on the tandem with our designated person, and we went around the parking lot twice and then right into traffic on the outskirts of Boston in Brookline, Massachusetts, to do Nothing like- Nothing dangerous a, there? Oh my God. To do a 30-mile ride. I was- abjectly terrified the whole time it took a very long time because you would have to start and stop in traffic all the time yep. and make all negotiate all these turns and when you have somebody you know this like on the back if if they're sighted they're automatically doing a little body english to accommodate that even if you're not thinking about it but somebody mm -hmm. who can't see isn't doing that you know, so the woman who was in the back of it with me, I, I'm not sure how we both didn't die. And I kept asking her, I'm like, are you terrified? She's like, no, I trust you completely. I'm like, okay, because I'm vaguely terrified. But, but <laughs> we lived and we learned how to be like, I'm like, okay, one, two, three, here we go. Never been so happy to pull into a parking lot in my life. I mean, it was, um, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was an, ended up being an amazing experience, but holy man, that was, uh, yeah. Terrifying. So, yes, I've ridden one other with a friend, but that's that's my extent. I, I will say this as a reader service, reader service, listener service. If you're going to tandem and you can back me up here, I think you need to have um, some compatibility in your pedal pedaling, right? Don't you have to be sort of compatible in how you pedal a bike? I'll say one person needs to be pretty adaptable with their cadence. Okay. Yeah, you had mentioned that before, and you are able to adapt your cadence. Yeah, yeah. on the front. Uh, apparently, yeah. a lot of cyclists think that my workable range of cadence is much too broad. It work well. It work well because you mountain bike and you do other things. I think that. Yeah, I'm the same way. I can go super low or very very high. Um, 
And I think well, that, you're I a think single speeder. Sort of, if you can't maintain a cadence of four, what are you going to do? Four to two hundred, baby. That's what single <laughs> speeding is. Are right. are the reverse? It goes four. You know, you're going two hundred, and then you hit the hill, and it's you know you're down to twenty six, and then you're back. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that is that yeah. is the thing. So that's our yeah. tandem experiences for for the. Uh, <laughs> I've actually done there. some tandeming with uh with blind stokers as well. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, so years and years ago, we're talking 99, 2000, uh, there were a few races in the L.A. area where they brought out some tandems and they brought out uh, some people from some organization for the blind. And they pulled a bunch of us aside after our race was over and said, would you be willing to do another race uh, wow. on a tandem with uh, you know, a blind stoker. And I was like, when do we start? Uh, just the notion of like being able to give, uh, share this experience uh, with someone who can't really ride a bike otherwise, right? And they were experienced being a stoker though, right? Maybe. I, it's just, Maybe. It was just that lack of sort of body that really threw me off. Did you? <clears throat> so... Uh, the first time I did it, this is my clearest memory. Uh, I did two different races and the first one, uh, my stoker was around my weight or maybe just a little bit less. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we, we nearly won the race, uh, with another 50 meters. We want to won it. I forget what it was, why we were coming from behind the way we were, but we got it together and holy cow, uh, it was, that was good fun. And then I got on a different tandem, not my own, uh, with a fella who uh, I, he probably had 70 pounds on me wow. at minimum. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and he was a strong guy. And the tandem had horizontal dropouts. And every time he went to, we went to start and he would hit that first pedal stroke. Uh, it would cock the rear wheel and the dropouts <laughs> so that the tire would hit the chain yeah, stay. Yeah. And so it took us three different, three or four different tries to get started. And I was telling him, go easy. Let's just gradually start right, pedaling. Right. You don't have to explode off the line. And we finally did get going. And then it was like uh, the one of the scariest freight trains of my entire life because trying to handle that weight, especially on a, on the t particular tandem design I was on, it didn't have that direct lateral tube that most tandems mm -hmm. today have. Uh, and so getting through this U-turn on the course was not terrifying, but just a little scary. Well. Um, and then later on, aside from having a girlfriend that I did tons of t uh, tandeming with some years back, um, I there was a, a blind uh, woman I met uh, at a club function. She owned her own Cannondale tandem and was just looking for somebody to take her for rides. So I would go do my Sunday training ride, um, get 65 miles in on my way back into LA, I'd swing off the ride, go to her apartment. I'd take her out for another 30 miles, take her back to apartment, get back on my single and then ride home. Wow. And, that's uh, rad. Alexa was, she was a lot of fun. 
uh, uh, except for any time we got going faster than about 35 miles an hour. She would, she would get to a point where there was enough wind that she would just stop pedaling. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's, it's challenging, but there's a kind of intimacy that comes with tandeming that you don't get in any other form of cycling. You know, because you've had the same cadence, because mm-hmm. you're putting your outside foot down at the same time, because you've got the exact same arc through the turn. There's an intimacy to it that nothing else replicates. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful. Right. I might put you on the back sometime. <laughs> My God. Get us in the same area code. Oh. All right. <laughs> yeah. Let's, I'll give you the first poll. Speak. I'll, I'll be the stoker this week. What do you got? Okay. Well, so for my poll this week, I'm diving into a question from a listener of ours named Tom. He asked okay. me about flow states. So we should begin with the opening question, what is flow? It goes by a bunch of names, including runner's high and being in the zone. The first most important thing to understand is that this is a transcendent physiological state. It's not just some cutesy pop psych term for a happy mood. This is a biological experience. Flow is a blend of action and awareness where past and future disappear. All there is is the moment you're completely in the present. It's also an equilibrium between challenge and skill. If you're doing something too easy, you get bored. On the other side, if the activity is too difficult, you end up anxious or even fearful. However, in the middle is a place where something is difficult, but you're good enough to manage it. If you get through something difficult, like say a group ride in a big pack, and you get to the end and you feel exhilarated, that, my friends, was flow. Nothing in my opinion, nothing else in life is as enjoyable as being in flow. It's a kind of least common denominator of the greatest experience we can have. You can enter flow riding a bike, playing guitar, baking a cake. That's because the part of your brain that lights up during flow can't tell the difference between baking a cake and riding a bike. And as the challenge increases, and your skill increases, the intensity of the flow state increases. So the better you are, the more it rewards you. That part is one of the really compelling aspects of all this. So I mentioned how this is a physiological state, not just some happy mood. Here's a very quick rundown on the neuroscience. There are five neurotransmitters released during flow. There's dopamine, which is all about reward, endorphins, which kill pain, and offer a dash of euphoria Um, And then there's norepinephrine, which focuses your attention and causes time to dilate. So anytime things have gotten super intense and the world goes slow-mo, that's not a trick of your memory. It's not a trick of perception. That was norepinephrine. And practically speaking, this is like relativity, practically speaking, time really did slow down. The final two are really surprising. Anandamide, which promotes creativity, and serotonin, which is basically happiness in a chemical. All five of those appear in flow. I could do a whole poll just on the neuroscience. There's a lot more to all of this. What I will do, though, is another poll sometime about how to deliberately chase flow. Here's how to answer the question of whether or not you've ever experienced flow on the bike. If you finished a ride and felt like you were glowing with contentment, just kind of grinning, 
you were in flow. It's that simple. Celine, one of the interesting things about flow is people's reactions when they learn that this is an objective, empirically verifiable experience. I'm curious to know from you when you learned about it and what sort of ahas you may have had about it within your own writing life. That's a good question. I mean, I don't... Um, when you were talking about how, you know, if you if you finish a ride and you're glowing with contentment and, and it's that ability meets challenge, challenge meets ability, that makes me feel like I've been in flow a lot, <laughs> like a lot more than my, <laughs> that, that maybe I would even say that I've been in flow in the way sure. that I have, have tended to think about flow in my own personal way. Because I have personally... Um, I've personally put it up on a higher plane, if you will. Like mm-hmm. I have personally considered, and this this might just be my own bastardization of the definition of it, but um, you know, I can recall times when I'm going really fast. Like I was, one of the rides was Cape Epic uh, in Africa, South Africa, years ago. We were my teammate and I were blowing by everybody down this very technical descent. Um, the kind that would normally m- have me scared and I couldn't hit anything wrong. Like it was just mm-hmm. it, like, it, it, it felt I easy, was easy. I was fearless. I was ex- it, like, just like exhilarated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was amazing. And I've had a couple of mountain bike races similar to that where I haven't had to think at all. And like, you know, the lines just appear immediately as I'm looking for, like there's no, you know, sometimes when things are off and mountain biking is really a good one to, to think about flow because when it's, when you're not at all in flow, it's, it, it can be kind of not a fun experience because you're hitting things and you're banging into things and you're not, you know, yeah. you, you, it's frustrating, right? Yeah. Most of the time I would say I'm in semi flow, you know, like I'm, <laughs> I'm going pretty well, but then I'll have to like, I get out of flow and then I'm back into flow. Um, when, when it's a full flow race, it is brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. on the road bike, I tend, I tend to call those days chainless, you know, it's <laughs> the days where mm-hmm. I feel like I could just fly. Like I can just, the, the, the hills are flat and I can just. And it's the same thing, like the, the miles, you know, I look down and I'm like, oh my God, how is 60 miles gone? Like just, you know, that's that time compression element of it. It's not like, oh, we're only 20 miles in and we've got 87 to go. And how am I, you know, it's just like a whole yep. different. Um, and that's also the endorphins. Painkiller. Right. right. You're oh, not yeah, yeah, hurting. Yeah, yeah. You know? So I, I, I think in my mind, it has to be that perfect storm of all of it. You know, like there can be days that that I do feel good, but I wouldn't call it flow and days where I'm riding really well, but I wouldn't put it on that pedestal that I call flow. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm, and I'm not sure if I'm just being too, I might just be being too, uh, picky about my own personal, do you know what I'm saying? Definition. I think you're being a little modest, uh, or, or, or just conservative in your view of it. Here, here's a way to reframe the consideration, you know, relative to what you've described. Let's talk about having a bottle of wine. Sure. You know, there are those times when you have a glass and it was really nice. Wasn't, you know, it wasn't like an amazing evening, but you had a nice glass of wine. Okay. That was pleasant. And then there are those nights where you have two glasses of wine 
and you really feel pretty good. And every now and then, over a long evening, maybe you had four glasses of wine, and by the end of the night, you just want to hug everybody. That's kind of right. like flow. Uh, only flow doesn't have the thing where you have the seventh glass of wine and puke all over the bathroom. Right, fair, yes. And, and you don't wake up with a flow hangover, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, but if you want to see, have you seen... Um, uh, 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 solo. It's not um, free solo. Yes, I haven't had a chance to see that. Dude, I've seen dude, the Dawn Wall. It but is I the seen free epitome solo of flow. When you watch it, yeah. it is. I that is. You'll never see a flow state that looks just like he, him in flow. Like it is. It's palpable. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think it's a real thing, and I do. I do wonder. Um, Especially in today's modern life, because I think, you know, I, yes, you can get it baking a cake, and yes, you can get it doing a lot of things, music for sure. Um, but I wonder how many people are flow-deprived. I think there's probably a lot of that. But I think the, the more important detail to convey to listeners is one of hope. You know, it's that in all likelihood— You've experienced flow in your life. You've mm, already okay. experienced this. And I think the biggest key for people is to have that awareness to connect this term, you know, this concept with this thing that they've already experienced. Because for me, it was the most epic aha of my entire life. Because once I really, it took me, it took me reading this one book, West of Jesus, reading it twice. I had to go through it twice to really feel like I digested it. And at the end of it, I realized that my entire life, I've been a flow junkie. I've been chasing hmm. flow in every pursuit. It's the only time where I feel like I'm any good at anything. As a writer, as a musician, as a cyclist, everything I've ever done, when I'm happiest doing that thing, I look back on it and it's like, oh yeah, I was in flow. I was completely right. lost. People were throwing rocks at my head and I didn't know. You know, that sort of thing. And so suddenly I had a, a way to completely reframe one of the central pursuits of my life. I had a way to put an equal sign between playing drums, riding a bike, and typing right. verbs. Right, right. They hmm. seemed, prior to that, they all seemed like different pursuits using similar energy. And then suddenly I realized, oh, no, I'm drilling down to the same organ in my brain. Right, right. No, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, trying to popularize that, to, trying to deliver that message uh, to cyclists that you've got a nearly perfect instrument for reaching flow in your life already. You know, that's the thing about cycling. That's why so many people see cycling as an integral mechanism to happiness in their lives. What they're doing is they're finding flow. Cool. No, I think that's a, that's a very good hopeful message. Yeah. One, one last little detail I'll, I'll share. I interviewed a, a, a neuroscientist uh, a couple of years ago for a feature that ran in bicycling. And one of the things that he said to me was, you know, if we could package all of the neurotransmitters that are in flow into a single pill, it would, it would put all the other antidepressants off the market. It would be oh, the perfect I, yeah. antidepressant. So, I fully believe that. 
you know, that's just something to kind of roll around in your mouth. Totally, totally get that. But I, I, I will, uh, I will counter is not the right word, but, I'll, but I'll see that with, I believe that, uh, in the us of the yin yang principle that you can't be in flow all the time because mm. you also have to, you know what I mean? You have to be, yeah. it has to ebb and flow, if you will, uh, for you to really appreciate when you're deep in flow. Yeah. That's something for us to touch on another time. How, <laughs> how, yeah, the amount of flow you get, uh, there may be a, a finite, uh, allotment each month we might say. Okay. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what do you got? What do I got? I yeah. also have a poll based on a listener's question. Um, this one is on fasted training, which is uh, mm. which is something that I've written about quite a bit over the years. And it's, um, you know, it's something that I've done without naming it, you know, with myself, like before, like people even talked about it. It's something that I've sort of naturally done. It's something I do quite a bit this time of year where... You're riding, um, you know, more in zone two, riding a lot of base rides, not doing a lot of intensity. Um, a lot of riders use it as a weight loss tool, you know, so that it comes up for that. And, you know, the idea for the, for those who are unfamiliar is that, you know, you go out and ride usually first thing in the morning because it's fasted. That's when you've generally had your longest fast, which is overnight. Um, you can have water, black coffee, tea, you know, the idea is just no uh, calories, no carbs. And the objective is that since your glycogen stores are pretty depleted after an overnight fast, that once you go out, you're forcing your body to dip into your fat stores for energy. Um, you know, it's an idea that's been around forever. Uh, there's lots of mystery and mystique and misconceptions about the whole thing. I have former pro racer friends in their 70s who have regaled me with stories about bonk training, you know, like going out like. <laughs> yes. Yes. And Tay Taylor Finney once told me like he and his teammates would go on vision quests, you know, like a bar in their pocket in seven hours on the day and just like see things. So. <laughs> Hunting the bonk. Yeah, exactly. Um, and seeing what's on the other side and whatever. You know, I, I don't really recommend that. Pros do a lot of stuff that uh, may or may not be healthy, may or may not be advisable. Uh, for the rest of us, you won't see me pedaling down a mountainside in a super tuck Chris Froome style anytime soon. And I, I kind of put that level of punk training up there, like unnecessary for most people's lives. Um, but there is, is good science uh, behind, you know, now they are calling it training low, you know, which is also like training in a low glycogen state, fasted riding, whatever you want to call it. Um, research does find that it, you know, it does improve fat burning. In some cases it can improve uh, over time power to weight ratio because you are losing some fat without compromising endurance. Um, even if weight loss isn't a goal, I think that it's useful because it, it helps with metabolic flexibility, which I, which I honestly think is the real key, key here. Um, mm -hmm. And by metabolic flexibility, I mean that your body is able to adapt to the demands at the time on your bike. So anytime that you're doing something, in, and this is just my philosophy on all of this, whenever you're going to do any kind of dietary manipulation or training, like, I really think it should make sense. I think there should be a direct benefit to what you are actually doing on your bicycle. And in real life, being a better fat burner is actually really good for you. Like, you can ride longer without hitting the wall. You are 
less likely to bonk, you know, because you are a better fat burner. You have like even the leanest person has lots of hours worth of fat to burn. I mean, you just have a lot of fat. Um, you know, all that stuff is super great. So it's good to be meta- metabolically flexible. Um, but you also, you know, this is the problem. So if one, if something is good to do, many cyclists are like, it must be great to overdo, right? And that's, <laughs> it, it, so let's address that. It's not the only, yes. it's not the only thing you should be doing. You shouldn't be overdoing it um, because you also need to be a good carbon sugar burner. Like you also need to be able to be on course and shovel those fig bars into your face and finish a ride strong. You need to have the right digestive enzymes to do that. You have needed to train your gut to do that, right? Like your body adapts, is amazingly adaptable. So you need to also go out in a carb repleted state, you know, with like, and, and feed yourself and train your gut and train yourself. And, and you really only can train those really high intensities with some carbs on board and with some glycogen in your system. So this is not an all or nothing affair here. This is, you know, if you're going to do um, fasted training, which this is a, like I mentioned in the beginning, a fine time to do it because most of us are doing lower intensity right now. You know, just like two, maybe three times a week, you can roll out, hit the trainer, whatever you're doing, and just have, you know, have an espresso and take a bottle of water. And what I like to do actually is ride to breakfast. So if you're going to do a long ride, you know, it's it's a joy. Like I've got my water and like I have a lovely destination in mind where I'm going to eat, you know, but like, if I'm going to be out for longer than two hours, and this is a good general rule of thumb, I mean, you only want to do this for like 90 minutes to two hours. That's when your glycogen would be, you need something at that point. You're going to bonk. Um, have a bar in your pocket just in case. You know, just so after that point, just start eating. After that two-hour mark, put some sugar in your system. Because um, the idea really is not to bonk. It's just to get yourself in that metabolically flexible place where you're burning fat. Um, I should also note that in my research for the book Roar with Stacey Sims, you know, digging into it a little bit more, it's not as conclusive as in women. The studies have not shown it being, yes, uh, it's a, it's a hormonal thing. We have a higher cortisol response to it. So your cortisol, which is a stress hormone, is already mm-hmm. elevated in the morning. Mm-hmm. Now, they have, it seems that in women, then going out and doing this increases the stress response and increases the cortisol and then starts manipulating the system to actually store more fat and become, I mean, it, it's... It, it seems to be more complicated, as so many things are in women. So um, I have done it to success. That doesn't mean every woman can. You know, I mean, it, so it's, it's worth trying. But if you feel like it's not getting you anywhere, it's not the end of the day either. Right. Like just go about, you know, have a snack and go for your ride. You're still going to get endurance training in and of itself makes you a better fat burner just because mm-hmm. you have, you know, you just give more capillaries and more enzymes, et cetera. But People are interested, and I do think that it is a useful tool uh, this time of year. I, I, I don't think you need to be, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty resilient creatures. Sometimes I get concerned when people are snacking before every single ride and then eating during every ride and then having a recovery drink after every ride because you can go out for your hour or two and not really do anything special, you know, unless you're doing like mad intervals or something. But uh, yeah, I mean, what's your? have you done any of this kind of I don't know any of it, bonk training, coffee rides. So when I was younger, uh, let's, let's go back to the late 1980s, early 1990s. I was somebody who, yeah, we would, we would joke about going on long rides and hunting the bonk. Huh. Uh, um, 
my understanding now is that that is entirely counterproductive, that uh, that you want to do everything you can to avoid bonking, that that there's just no no helpful metabolic lesson to your body in a bonk because of you know the way you destroy muscle protein and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. It it takes long. It takes a while to recover from that. Like you, you do some damage that. Uh, as you say, can be counterproductive because it's taking you longer to recover from it than any benefits that you're getting. Yeah. And so kind of my question to you then is, you know, in terms of listeners trying to process this, you're Mm -hmm. saying 90 minutes to two hours uh, to start eating. They want to start eating before they start feeling hungry because if you're feeling hungry, the bonk has already started, right? Yes. Um, I mean, it, the, just because it's it's I mean, the whole the whole thing is it's is difficult more compl- stuff. Yeah, it's more complicated than that. You 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 shouldn't feel vapory. Let's put it that way. There, there's a you know what I mean? There's a difference. On and, and, yes. Yeah. And you know that like if you're a little grunt, like 90 minutes is more than enough time, you know, and, and have a snack. And if you wake up ravenous, don't do it. Save it for a morning where you, you're like, if you had just had a really hard training session and you wake up and you're actually already low blood sugar starving, this is not the time to go out and exercise this, right? Like, you, sh- you should feel pretty normal because um, you, you don't want to, when you wake up, you're about 50% depleted. If you just did some <laughs> crazy thing, like, the, uh, you know, did a bunch of crits or something the day before, you, you might be like, 90%. You don't want to do that. You don't want to go out like completely empty. You want your body to recover. So you want to give it what it needs to recover. You want to take care of yourself. This is, you know, this is just during the, that's why I said this is kind of a good time of year because most people aren't doing that kind of stuff. You know, they're just doing normal rides. They're waking up with a, like a, just a normal base level of glycogen depletion. Totally fine. But yeah, I mean, you don't want to, uh, you don't want to be feeling lightheaded, dizzy, vapory, any of that kind of stuff. If you start to feel yeah. a little hungry, yes, you definitely have a bite of whatever is in your pocket. Okay. Well, I mean, that, that helps me some. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't get to do early morning training the way I used to. When I was in L.A. and before there was a second kid, I was doing these training rides Tuesdays and Thursdays where we were we were rolling out at 6.30. I had to be on my bike by 6.20. And so I would get up and I would mix a bottle of Gatorade or whatever and roll out, you know. Yep. I, I was not eating anything. And I would very often walk back in the door, basically directly to the kitchen. <laughs> you know, yes. It was, a, it was a, an hour and 50 minute ride. And very often it was so, so intense. And, you know, we were in such close quarters that I might only drink from my bottle at stoplights. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I, I, you can, there's so many different ways to approach this. You know, I think that on a longer ride, that's not as intense uh, that is early, like a lot of times I will just go out and just feed myself on the ride. But if I think <laughs> I'm going to be doing anything, like if it's going to be, you know, Sunday morning worlds, I am going to grab a cookie at least and shove it in my face before I go out the door, just so I have some little sugar on board, at least for my brain, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to be able to, to 
meet the intensity that I might find out there. It took me a while to figure out, you know, that that proper balance of, you know, how much food do I need to be able to get out there? I mean, because the classic thing of having, you know, a big breakfast three hours before you arrive. Right. That's not realistic sometimes. And when I was doing 100 milers, I learned that quick. Because like 100 mile mountain bike races start, God forsakenly early. There is no way I am going to get up at four, three, well, four, maybe three a.m. Forget it. Like, that's just not, it's just dumb. That's just dumb. And they start like a whole shot race. These things start like you're, you're doing some sort of like track. (laughs) It's ridiculous. So like, if you have all this food in your system, it is not staying put because you're just going so hard off the line. So I would just like, I was watching people around me and I'm like, you're just eating that. And it would be just a little bit. So they would be make sure that in the days leading up to it, they weren't, you know, carb loading yet just like skewing higher carbs in the days leading up to the event eating normally you know the night before having a small breakfast and then just feeding during the the race i mean there's there's a lot to nutrition i'm going to do another pull on it because we've had a bunch of requests um and i it is a a super complicated thing but uh cool yeah excellent okay so paceline picks cool um yeah i have you know, my pick is, is, is a little different this week, just as it's something on my mind, and it is uh, Zwift. Do you use Zwift? Oh. I haven't so far this winter, but I am distinctly a fan. Okay. I, I really like it. And, and I, I haven't even done any group rides yet, or races. There's a whole dimension of Zwift that I haven't done it, and I'm a fan. That's very interesting. Um, I... I rarely, rarely do it. Um, mostly just because I don't like having my bike fixed on a trainer. That is, that is a, I, and I'm, yeah, uh, I'm an outside person and I don't necessarily, I'm not a gamer, you know, I mean, but, but, but I cover Zwift a lot for bicycling and I have to say that over, and I can't, I don't know how many years they've been at it now. I mean, Zwift has been around five, how many years? Five or six years. Somewhere in that, that, right? I believe they are a net positive force in the sport. Oh, agreed. Um, they they have women's races where nearly a thousand women show mm-hmm. up. You know, they'll have eight hundred to a thousand women on the line, and that's not something you'll ever see in real life. Yeah. And you know, when I talk to people, sometimes they roll their eyes and they're like, "Well, you know, it's kind of sad, don't you think? They should be in real communities and real rides." But when I talk to those women, many of them have serious limitations. And not just women. It's just because I've talked. these are the people I've talked to. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're like stay-at-home single moms. That, yeah. that, that they, this enables them to actually have a community. Like, they are part of teams. And they have yep. regular rides. And they race. And they're getting really fit. And they're getting in flow. And they're getting endorphin highs. And there's when they otherwise might have been isolated with their bike yeah. hanging with flat tires on it. You know, I yep. mean, there's something really, really amazing about that. Totally. When and, they had... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, they're also, I feel like they're, and this is on my mind because of what happened last weekend, I feel like they're really pushing the boundaries in our sport. Um, and sometimes I, I don't agree. And, and in the case of last weekend, I'm, I, I'm still trying to formulate what I think about it. But so last weekend in Australia, Zwift hosted the first ever national esports uh, cycling championship race in Australia. So mm-hmm. to be clear, they have had Zwift nationals before 
where all countries competed and the winner got to wear, wear a special Avatar jersey for the year. This is this is different. This is Australia had their national championship road events last weekend. Real life and Zwift. And the Zwift winners, the man and the woman, get real life medal and a real life green and gold national champion jersey to wear in presumably in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, and Britain is having one this year. I know the U.S. is in talks. And it's only a matter of time before kind of everybody does it. And I don't, I don't know what I... I mean, I, I'm... There is definitely part of me that bristles about wearing a national championship. There definitely is. I would be lying if I said there wasn't. But they are, they are exposing our sport to so many people and pushing boundaries and, and gathering giant communities. And I... I uh, cheers to them. I had to give him a hand. Yeah. I, so I have a friend here in town when Zwift had the women's competition and then brought a, a bunch of women into Long Beach for mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a together race where everybody was doing Zwift in the same room. Yeah. My yeah. friend Chris Culver uh, had won some stuff and was one of those finalists who got flown down to Long Beach. And that's a significant one because while the cycling community here in Santa Rosa is really large for a city of 170,000, it's still a really small community. And so her opportunities to do a group ride that is going to force her to turn out 300 watts for minutes at a time, she doesn't have a lot of opportunities like that around here. Mm -hmm. And this is a woman who's been amazeballs since the 1980s. She was a pro downhiller. And this has helped to give her a whole new lease on her competitive life. That's and cool. one of the weird upshots of all this is that now she's got a Thursday morning women's ride where she's initiating new women into group riding because she doesn't have to worry about, oh, I need to get my workout on. I can help mentor women on a group ride. On, on Zwift. No. Oh, oh no, in real, real life. life. Okay, that's yeah. what I'm trying. So the, the lines of, are, okay. Yeah. Wow, okay. So I, she's helping you. women learn how to do group riding because she's getting the hard workout in with Zwift. And wow, so she okay. can set that huh. need aside, wow. uh, that need aside mm-hmm. and, and do, you know, this other riding huh. with women. I mean, that's not a selling point for Zwift. That's just how awesome, awesome Chris is. But I, you know, the, the whole national champion thing i'm pleasantly uh pleased to say that i just don't care i i can i can respect that that's the better attitude yeah it is just what it is i like that being good at zwift is is a thing mm-hmm. and it's not the same thing as being a good bike racer if you're going to be a great bike racer there's a whole other suite of abilities that you mm-hmm. need that yep. zwift is not going to help you capitalize on at the same time zwift will allow you to further explore aspects of your own fitness that being a real bike racer wouldn't really allow you to concentrate concentrate on to the same degree like yeah, figuring out fair. how to turn 500 watts for a half an hour no no that's a good point that's that's fair i hadn't actually thought of that one so you know it's its own thing um, it is its own they, thing that's what where i've settled on it too like it's its own you know, they thing. keep offering new courses the the graphics have gotten better i 
it's cool. It's it's really only cool. going to get better. I mean, it's only yeah. they're like. I mean, they are, they raised $120 million. They are legitimately looking at this as like trying to get into some sort of Olympic level thing. So, one of the other things to consider about them, worth noting, is that, you know, these aren't just people who were in the gaming industry who thought, no, we could hook this up to. I mean, former track world champion Mike McCarthy is part of this organization. They know bike racing. No, they know. Yeah, they know cycling. That's clear. That is clear. They are. That is part of the company DNA and it permeates everything. And there's no there's no I think that's why they're successful, frankly. Yeah, it's really legitimate. Yeah. And it's oddly compelling to watch. I don't know if you've ever watched. One of these races where they have, like you were talking about, like the people are in the room as well as on the screen and there's color commentary going on. It's oddly compelling because you wa- you're watching the game game, but you're also watching them like sweating and dying on their trainers. And it's, I could I could see that not being like paint drying. No, not at all. It was very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I may so. have to give that a try. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah. What do you got for us this week? Well, related to what my poll was, my pick this week is about a book uh, that concerns flow by Stephen Kotler called The Rise of Superman. I have and heard it, about this. Oh, it's awesome. Okay. Uh, so Kotler examines the rise of extreme sports and what caused athletes to go from not being able to do a backflip on a motorcycle to the first landed backflip in 2002 to the first double backflip only four years later. Okay, it took 60 years to go from a single axle to a double axle in figure (laughs) skating. Okay, 60 years. This was done in four years. They they did something impossible and then they doubled impossible four years later. Okay, huge. Kotler makes the case that crazy kids chasing flow was what caused such an accelerated progression of ability in sports like freestyle motocross, climbing, skateboarding, wingsuiting, (laughs) you know, name something crazy. When you see people doing impossible stuff, flow's underpinning that advancement. Mm -hmm. He documents some wildly mind-blowing stuff. If you have ever had the inclination to dismiss a Red Bull-sponsored athlete as a well-paid jackass, this book will change that. The book is so good, I give it to people as a present, guaranteed to change what you believe about human potential. I'm also pleased to say that Stephen is a friend of mine. I helped him with some stuff about mountain biking for the book, but it ended up on the cutting room floor. Uh, Way more impressive, just to give you a sense of how good the narrative is. The book was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Oh, wow. Okay. I will will definitely check it out. It's been on my radar. Yeah. Just, it's tight prose. It's a fast read. It's muscular. It's a super compelling story. And I mean, some of the hair-raising stuff that he... Uh, is able to document and really get inside is, like I said, mind-blowing. All right. Sold. Yeah. All righty. Well, what do you got going on? Uh, The Pennsylvania Farm Show. (laughs) (laughs) What? Honestly, yes. I mean, I'm going to ride my bike. You know, that'll be fun. But we have the PA Farm Show every year, and they have the giant butter sculptures and all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to go to do that this weekend in between bike rides. That Dog sounds out. fun. <laughs> it is fun. That it's very fun. fun. Yeah. How about yourself? Well, today I get to do my first ride since my injection. 
Oh, that's Yay! exciting. And it's it's actually getting to be sunny. It was super foggy this morning. It's getting to be sunny, so I can't wait to get this mixed and get out on the road. But then tomorrow, uh, tomorrow it rains. I think Saturday is clear. And then Sunday through Saturday next week, rain the whole time. I've got a bike Ooh. set up with fenders. You could swift. I have... I have, yeah, I'm probably gonna some. I yeah. really am, but I'm I'm gonna spend some time rather wet in the next week. Uh, but you know, because I've been off the bike so so long, all my cycling clothing laundry is done. I'm having trouble fitting everything into the dresser because it's never all clean at the same time. No doubt, no doubt. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I wish you a good ride today. Yeah, thanks. You know. Uh, to reiterate to our listeners, uh, we want to be fielding requests for segments on the show. If you've got an idea, please drop by RKP and put a suggestion in the comments. You can also email us. People, people are doing that as well. Before we go, I'd like to put in a plug for RKP's other podcast, The Poll. The show features artisans talking about their craft in one-on-one interviews. As always, Terry grows for the bike set. This week's interview is with frame builder Dave Kirk, who cut his teeth at Serata. We hope you've enjoyed the show, and if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with Celine Yeager. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line.